Thank you, Dan and worship team. Wow, I needed that. Today, welcome back. My name is Jeremy. I preach here, and I'm glad to do so and glad to have you. I know that some of you may be returning from your travels, and if so, welcome to the wintry north. We are glad you've returned. Um, What we did last Sunday is we celebrated Easter, which is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was a great day for us. We were excited as Christians, and we proclaimed the name of our Lord and God and Savior and friend. And today is the next Sunday. (laughs) But what does that mean? That means this, is that even though last Sunday was Easter Sunday, in fact, every day is Easter Sunday. Because He is risen He's risen indeed. All right. Today is Sunday, and we celebrate on Sundays because Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday. So we continue that. Even though, you know, last week was a great, great week, we continue in that faithful tradition and celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we're continuing our uh, sermon series in the book of 1 John. Uh, We'll be in chapter 2 today. You don't have to turn there quite yet because I want to introduce you to this section Via a, via a very important piece of classical literature. It was a movie that came out, in fact, in 1987. Every good book, I suppose, have a movie now after it. And this one is no exception. In this movie, there is the opening scene of a young child, a boy, in fact, being read a story by his grandfather. And as the uh, scene progresses, the young man asks his grandfather, as all young men do, is this a kissing book? And his grandfather assures him, no, it's not one of those. And he says, does it have sports in it? And his grandfather says, oh, yes, all kinds of sports. It has fencing and fighting and ogres and monsters and giants and chases and escapes and miracles and, of course, true love. That 1987 movie was Princess Bride. Exactly right. And now, yes, the moment has arrived when I'm beginning a sermon with the Princess Bride. Farm Boy Wesley, Princess Buttercup, Dread Pirate Roberts, Prince Humperdinck, and of course, everybody's favorite, Inigo Montoya. At the time, this was an extremely low-budget film, and as such, it was inconceivable how often that movie would be quoted in the future, becoming a cult classic. Of course, it was extremely cheesy and it had a lot of funny scenes, but the thing I think that makes it great is that the message behind it is actually pretty good. The message demonstrated not just through the words of Wesley, but in fact through the entire life of Wesley, is that true love knows no bounds. So that whatever the beloved ask, whether it is to do an errand, go into exile, fight the dread pirate Roberts, pass through the fiery swamps, do battle with R-O-U-S's, rodents of unusual size, nearly have, or have nearly all the life sucked out of him, no matter what it was. Wesley's answer was always, as you wish. 
so too in genuine, heartfelt, perfect submission, that thing which we call love. When the beloved asks us to do something, our answer should be, as you wish, as you wish. Today in 1 John, you find a very similar sort of thing. Grandpa John, the elderly apostle, is reading a letter to his grandchildren in the faith. And in this letter, he is not dealing with the dread pirate Roberts or R-O-U-S's, but instead he's dealing with Gnostics and Pharisees. Or in other words, there are certain people that think that they have transcended the moral law, that they are above it and higher and smarter. These are the Gnostics. And there are other scoundrels who believe that they have mastered the law. With all of its intricacy and detail, they have it figured out. These are the Pharisees and religious leaders. So one group says, ah, we don't need the law. The other group says, we are the experts and the pros. And to both of those groups, the apostle says, nah, not really. It's mostly arrogance, overconfidence, and pride that leads you to believe that. And in fact, you reject Jesus and you reject his church, and that's a problem. And so the way that the apostle is going to deal with it is he's basically going to challenge them to a battle of wits, right? He is going to challenge them to a duel, and like Inigo Montoya or in fencing, they are going to make their attack, he will block, and then he will counterattack. And that is what you see in the three main phrases or statements that structure this passage. He's going to frame their arguments and say, You say this, but, cha-ching, I say this, and pop, here's my response. So watch how this unfolds then with three basic tests, and the tests are these. I'm going to put them up on a slide. We're going to work through them this morning. It's going to be our basic structure. I'll explain a little bit more about how I'll move it, but this is how this passage moves. It starts with this. Whoever says, I know him, this is their Boom, the Gnostics say, ah, we know God, right? And the Pharisees say, we know God. But the apostle is going to counterattack and say, ah, you say you know him, but do you keep his commands? If not, you're a liar. Test number one. Test number two goes like this. It's a similar sort of theme, but it's this. Oh, you say you abide. Whoever says he abides, well then, whoop. Do you walk as Jesus walked? Test number two. And then finally, test number three goes like this. He says, whoever says I am in the light, we are so enlightened. We are the Illuminati. We understand all things that you don't. But hates his brother. If you've left the church, that means you've rejected the church and you hate your brothers. Then you live in darkness. Cha-ching. Three attacks and counterattacks that the apostle is going to lay out. Now, what these tests do is basically they're going to do a couple things. They're going to separate the good guys from the bad guys. They're going to say, well, clearly, if you say this, but you aren't like this, then you're obviously not on the team. So it has the effect of making it clear the difference between true and false or wheat and chaff or hypocrites and real. And so he's going to separate out the false teachers. But at the same time, even though he's done that, it's also a challenge to the real believers. 
Because while they watch these uh, false shepherds or these wolves in sheep clothing get, get separated out, they themselves are thinking, whoa, gut check. It's time for me to look at my own life because, you know, that clearly is not true in them. But what about me? How's that look for me? And so today, that's kind of the way we're going to approach it. I'm going to assume that most of you are genuine, and so we're going to focus on the um, gut check for ourselves. And the intent is not to beat you over the head with a hammer and say, come on, obey, 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 and crack the whip and crack the whip and make you go home feeling guilty. But instead, the hope is to encourage and equip you. And in fact, I think we can do that as we move through this passage and even show you how this um, check or challenge can even be and encouragement as well. So again, the three things are, they're driven like this. Three tests, and they're driven by the word whoever. So if you underline or mark your Bibles, you're welcome to highlight that word, the word whoever, because that's going to show you each different test. Okay, And so the first one says, whoever says, I know him, but... The second one says, whoever says, I abide in him, well then... And the third one says, whoever says I'm in the light, but, and consequently, that, these are the challenges. Now, notice, you know, you have no abide and in the light. In a lot of ways, these are the exact same terms. So they're somewhat synonymous. They're just a different spin on getting at the heart of the matter. The apostle wants to go after your heart and find out what your genuine motivations and your real driving thrust is. And so he's going to do that in a very Hebraic or Hebrew sort of way, just doing the same thing in three different ways. This is called parallelism. We'll maybe perhaps look at a little bit of this this summer when we talk about the Proverbs. But for now, it's enough to know these are basically synonymous terms. So don't expect me to go through this thing in detail and say, well, the difference between know and abide and you know all that... What it is, is I'm going to focus on the first two just for emphasis, and then we're somewhat going to not cover the third because we've basically hit it all in the first two. Okay? There's always more, but for the sake of time and the synonymous features of this text, we're going to focus on the first two. So beginning then with test number one, we're going to look at whoever says, I am in the light. But... Before we do, let me read you the whole passage just so you see how it fits together. So if you have your Bibles, uh, this is the second chapter of John's first letter. It begins in verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to pick one up in the back. They're blue, and uh, we would love for you to be able to follow along in uh, any way that you can. So 1 John chapter three, chapter 2, verse 3. It says this. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the true, truly the love of God is perfected. Now by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and therefore in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Test three. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So the first test, the first whoever, verse Three and then verse 4 say it like this. They say, by this we uh, know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him. Now, I want us to stop right there because uh, we are contemporary North Americans who think in a certain way. We are uh, after the Enlightenment, and as a result, we have this scientific sort of mindset, and no doubt in the place we live, uh, that is accentuated. Consequently, we come to the word know, and we think, I know. Okay, what does that mean? That means data set. I know. Like, I have studied this portion, I have processed the information, I have assimilated the data, and bloop, chunk, I came up with an outcome. I have understood. Now, that is true, in, in a sense, for this word. But what you have oftentimes in the biblical mindset, in the pre-scientific era in that sense, is an entirely different idea that comes into the word to know. In a way, it's very similar to Spanish. In Spanish, you have two different words for to know. One is saber, which means like to know a fact. The other is conocer, which is to know a person. They, in their language, differentiate between these two and allow you, so I can say, I know you, I, I conocerte, I, I can know you to know you, but I can saber something else. I can know the fact. I can know my math, right? In this setting, what you have is to know means not just factually I've understood this, I've processed the data, but I've had a personal experience with it. That is why we in evangelical Christianity, almost to a fault, sometimes talk about your personal relationship with Christ. Because it really is that, that Jesus is a risen and resurrected Lord, that he walks with you now, and not only can you know facts about him, like he lived a long time ago, which is really cool, and he said some neat stuff, and he's a historical person, but you can actually know him in an interpersonal, experiential sort of way. That your knowledge of him is not just factual or data-driven, but it's personal and experiential. In a sense, it's similar to your spouse. If you are married, then you know there is a big difference between, okay, I know that person, I know their birthday, I know where they live, I know what they do for a living, I know their favorite cup of coffee, their favorite color, and their favorite day of the year. That's knowledge of them. But there's an entirely different thing to say, I have lived with this person, I have walked with them, I have seen them on a daily basis, and I have experienced them in very close and intimate ways so that I know them in ways that nobody else ever has or will. I know this person. I really know them. They've seen me on my best day, and they've seen me on my worst day. And I with them. So here we are. We know. We have experienced We have factual experience and personal experience as well. So this is what the apostle is getting at when he says, Oh, you say you know Christ? Do you really know him? Have you personally experienced him? Do you have an intimate relationship with him? What is that like? If he is truly your beloved, 
then it will show up in certain ways. And these are some of the ways in which that shows up. You can have a knowledge of him, but whether or not you've experienced him, that's a different thing. So unlike our culture, this is very different. Here we are, and John says, do you, do you uh, know him? Here is the test. The test is obedience. Do you keep his commandments? Do you do what he says? In other words, for John, perfect love equals perfect obedience. If you think about love in our terms, today uh, a psychologist might tell you, like Gary Chapman, there are different love languages, right? Different people experience love differently. So for some people, it might be words of affirmation. When you say things that affirm me, man, that just fills my love tanks. I feel great. Woohoo! For other people, it might be gift giving. You know, you can talk all day, but if you actually give me something, whoa, that feels great. For others, it could be physical touch. For others, it could be quality time. There's all kinds of different ways to affirm someone, and indeed, we can express all of these love language to God. In order to say that we love him, we should use words of affirmation. We should praise him. In order to say that we love him, we should spend quality time with him. In order to say that we love him, we should give to him. In order to say that we love him, you know, we should go through all of these steps. But what the apostle is emphasizing in this chapter in particular is not necessarily those other things, but instead the acts of service. Doing things that demonstrate your love. He wants to see your tangible obedience to affirm all of those other things. So you say you love him. Praise God. Woohoo. Hallelujah. But on Monday morning, do you obey him? That really shows a big difference. That makes your words much more genuine. Well, so too, for example, in parenting. Now, even if you're not in this phase of life, never have been or never will be, that's fine. But I think you'll get the idea through this illustration. My children are awesome, okay? I love them like crazy and they're normal kids. But here's what happens sometimes. I come home... And I come through the door, and it's, whoa, Dad's home. All right, love you, Daddy. Oh, this is great, you know. And then it lasts for about five seconds. I look around the corner, and I see whether there's, you know, toys all over the floor, or their mom looks like this, or whatever. And that tells me what today has actually been like. Because it's one thing for me to come in the door and them to say, I love you, But my next follow-up statement is going to be, okay, I love you too. I'm so glad to hear that. And it just delights my heart. But did you pick up your room today like I asked you to? Or am I going to break my leg on Legos again? That hurts, by the way. How did you treat your mother? Were you respectful of the authority that has been placed in your life? That will show me you love me. And what about your brother, whom I love, by the way, very much? He's like part of me, and I really care about him. How'd you treat him? Because if I come in the door and you tell me you love me, and I see that you've completely disrespected my wife, you've totally trashed your room, and you've been mean to your brother all day long, how is that love? I don't get it. 
You want to make me feel really good? Let me come home and see that your mom is delighted with your behavior. That you have said, yes, ma'am, right away, I will all day long. And that your brother is stoked because even though he's a little guy, you've told him how cool he is all day long and he's so awesome and he thinks he's the greatest thing in the world. And that, in fact, you picked up your room, practiced the piano, and got your homework done. Whoa! What is this? You're awesome. I'm buying ice cream tonight. (laughs) All rounds on me. You know, that's a different thing. If you love me, show me by your obedience. Give me some tangible proof. Demonstrate to me that you care about what I command. So too with your heavenly father. He's saying, look, I love you. You're my child. I get that. I know you'll mess up sometimes. I don't expect perfection. I require it, but that I get from my actual son, not you. So just come on. Show me you love me. Obey what I say. Do it. That'll make a big difference. Please, you will make me so happy if you will just obey. Now, What does it mean to obey? Well, we're the data people, right? So, okay, I'm on it. I feel it. I'm going for it. Let's obey. So, what does he command? Oh, I know, I know. This is what I'll do. I'll get my Bible software, okay, and I'll just juice it up, and I'll set up a morphological search so that I'll figure out what every command Christ actually gives. I can do that. I'm going to... Set it up, and I'm going to tell my search mechanism to say every time, I want you to tell me every time that Jesus is the subject. Even when it says him or, you know, whatever, there's no specified pronoun. I want to know every time Jesus is a subject and the verb is in the imperative. And if I do that, I will get all the commands of Christ. Awesome! I can put a list on my wall, and I can check them off each night, make sure I did it. All right, here we go. Go get the fish. Hmm. Bring me a donkey. Hmm. Some of these aren't quite working out for me, you know? And there's a huge list, and it would take a ton of affinitizing, and it's really quite complicated, and I'm kind of confused. So how about this? Instead, we just ask him, Lord, what do you want us to do? I mean, there's a lot of rules. If I go back to the Mosaic Law, there are like 613 different pieces of legislation can I really figure that out each and every day? If, even if I love you a ton, can I do all of those in one day? No. So what do I do? Well, he said to them, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and following, here's what I want you to do, guys. At the end of the day, when I come home, run in the door, and you say I love me, this is what I want to know. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang the entire law and all the prophets. All 613 commands, every imperative, every time I tell you to do something, this is what it's about. Church, If we could just come to this place, can you imagine what a great place this would be? You know, I'm not saying you come to church every Sunday morning like I'm the perfection of Jesus Christ incarnate. 
What I'm saying is you get to the point where you say, you know what, doggone it, I'm not going to get it right every single day. I mess up, I'm a fallen sinner, but for the grace of God, I wouldn't even be here. But when I come to church, I'm like, you know what, brother, sister, I love you, we're We love each other. We're going to love God. We're going to move forward. We're in it together. We're going to mess up. But, you know, we're in it together and let's go. Here we are. This is it. Do you love God and love one another? These are the two great commandments. This is all that he asked the church to do. If you could just respect God, God's authority, if you could love your brother and just do this like he asked, he would be so, so happy. This is the word of the Lord. Now we look at this and we say, okay, pastor, you've simplified it and that's pretty clear, but even that sometimes I mess up. You know, I get grumpy. (laughs) I don't always love my brother. Sometimes he's hard to love. (laughs) I don't really want to be in the same room, and sometimes we need a time out. And all that is true. But here is the encouragement in it for us. Here is the part where it lifts our heart and lifts our soul and lifts our spirit. In this chapter, in chapter 2, verse 8, there's a very important phrase I don't want you to miss. Okay? How in the world do we fulfill the law of Christ, even if it's just that simple? Because we don't even get there. And it is this. Verse, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, which is, this is true in him and in you. In other words, because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law, as you are in him, so too do you then fulfill the law. In other words, let me say it in a um, theological sort of way. Through our mystical union brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit in which we vicariously identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through this strange mystical union of becoming one with him, therefore, in that sense, we have completed and fulfilled the law. In other words, as you abide in Christ, that's the word he uses, as you walk in him, as you are united with him, so too is the law then fulfilled in you. This is affected through the mysterious and powerful work, the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. We have a class on that this Friday night here at Midland Free in the 300 wing. Shameless plug. (laughs) Here we go. This Sunday, Pastor David will speak, and I'll teach this Friday night for a few hours on the Holy Spirit and who he is and how he works in your life. But for now, just notice this phrase that here's your encouragement. No, we are not perfect, but yes, Christ is. And because we are in him via our mystical union brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit, then the law is being fulfilled in us. Therefore, as the previous two verses said, verses 1 and 2, just like we emphasized a couple weeks ago, we have an advocate and we have the propitiate. We have an attorney who pleads our case 
And we have a Savior who pays our price. Because, listen to this wording now, we are no longer under, we are in. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We are no longer under the law, we are in Christ. And that is the difference. This is how the law is being fulfilled in us. We are no longer under, we are in. We are no longer under the burden of the law as long as we are in Christ. You get out from under Christ, the law is back on top of you. Abide in Him. Stay in Him. Because His blood is more precious, His sacrifice more effective, and His resurrection more powerful than all of our sin. We are in Christ. So then, this is how it works. By this we know that we are in Him, verse 5 says... Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. In other words, the assurance that we're looking for. We want to know, okay, that's kind of complicated. Jeremy, where's my assurance? The assurance that you are in Christ works itself out through your obedience. In other words, you say, okay, I'm in Christ. I love him, therefore I obey him. Well, as you obey him, then you are gradually becoming more and more like him. And as you become more and more like him, then you're abiding in the vine. And as you abide in the vine, then your roots go deep down into the soil. They are nourished and consequently you spring forth and bear fruit, which is obedience. Just like the analogy that Jesus gives, if, if you want to know what type of tree it is, you will know by its fruit. So for example, if you are an apple tree. It's possible that you could be an apple tree and have no apples. But that means there's a problem. You're sick, you're in bad soil, you're in a drought period or something. There's a problem. But as an apple tree, if you say, yeah, I'm an apple tree and my roots go down deep and I am nourished by the soil of God's love, His Holy Spirit and His Word, then I am built up and fortified. My branches go forth and, oh, there's fruit. I guess I'm an apple tree. (laughs) That makes sense. I see apples hanging off of my branches. I must be an apple tree. (laughs) And here is the assurance that is given in this passage. By this we know, we know, we have experienced it. We know personally, not just from a data-oriented perspective, but we know on a real daily basis because we have walked in Christ and we have borne fruit. We know that we are in him. This is an encouragement to you, church, not just a beatdown. This is how you know. This is your assurance. You know you are in Christ if you walk like he did. This is not a new thing. Verse 7 says, this is no new, new, new commandment. You've had this from the very beginning. This is old school. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. When God gave Moses the law, he said to him, look, Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. From the very beginning, this is the command. So even though it is, it is old, it is historic, it is also new. How then is it new? Well, look, in the old days, there was no Holy Spirit indwelling your heart. Consequently, even though you have the command right before you, you still can't keep it. There's no Jesus who's been manifested in the flesh. Consequently, we fail, 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 fail. 
But now, as a result of the coming of Christ, we have seen the law perfectly fulfilled. And this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, Jesus did all the way to the cross. And now because of the cross, a new era has been ushered in. And in that new era, it is no longer dependent primarily upon you, but on Christ and his work. And as you are in him, then therefore this can be fulfilled in you. Therefore, verse 8 says, at the same time, even though it's old, it is also new, because this is a whole new thing, which is true ah, in him and in you, because the darkness that was there is passing away. In other words, we found it. Here it is. This whole time we've been looking for the most beautiful, wonderful, glorious thing we could ever imagine. Our hearts have been searching for our beloved. There is something more we have desperately longed for. We have never got there. We haven't seen it. And in this moment, in the incarnation, in the flesh, in a little place in Bethlehem, it happened. And there it is. And that's why John begins his book, both books, the Gospel of John and 1 John, in a very similar way. It says in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, that very initial thing, life itself, before there was life, we've seen it, we've heard it, we've touched it, we've tasted it, we've experienced it, we know it in a very real way. The Logos, the Word made flesh, the perfect glory as of the Father, only begotten in the Son. We've seen it. And this we proclaim to you. The joy unspeakable, full of glory, God in the flesh, the perfection of all we long for. Here is your love. Here is your longing. This is your desire. This is what you're after. Church, feast on this. Jesus himself. In him we live and move and have our being. In him we find the fulfillment of the law. In him we find our fulfillment. In him we find our joy and peace and rest. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I am spiritually united. I am in Christ as a husband and a wife. Therefore, we move from start to finish in this way. We say we began with the princess bride. We end with the church, the bride. And as Wesley says to his lover, as you wish, so too must we say to ours, as you wish. Yes, Lord. As you wish. For as Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 tells us, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not through the fire swamps, not to the dread pirate Roberts, but to the garden of Gethsemane, the cross and beyond. And as a result, when the loved one makes his request of us, our response must be, as you wish. Father, you're a good and gracious God. Everything you do is right and true and just. And we can and admit that 
many times what we do is not. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin and I ask for the sins of our people and the sins of our church that you would forgive them. Your blood is more precious, your sacrifice more effective, your resurrection more powerful than all our sin. So as we celebrate you last Sunday, we celebrate you this Sunday. And Lord, we say with our mouths, we love you, and we pray that you would help us with our lives to do the very same, so that as you command us to love one another, our response will always be as you wish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.